so when I think about professional development, it goes back to that on-demand type of thing. More and more, we're getting so many things that are on-demand that um, that's definitely something to think about when developing professional development. And with all the YouTube channels like TEDx and TED with all of their presentations, as well as all the government agencies and, and keynote speakers at conferences, I mean, there are so many great things there to learn from a professional development standpoint. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. In this episode, we will be discussing the unmentionable drudgery, oh wait, I mean exciting possibilities for engaging in faculty professional development. So yes, let's start with the elephant in the room, faculty workload issues. Faculty are busy peeps. There are many recent examples in the literature that indicate full-time faculty work an average of 45 to 55 hours or more per week. In many health sciences, this heavy workload is compounded by two additional factors. The need to expend additional hours on clinically supervising students, as well as the frequent reality that they must also maintain a separate part-time practice position in order to keep their professional license current. So this episode is all about exploring ideas and perhaps non-traditional approaches for achieving professional development in this busy world. Before we move on, and to make sure that we are all on the same page, a small disclaimer. This podcast episode really isn't meant to be about formalized, profession-specific continuing education. Those standards vary a lot from discipline to discipline and are often tied to licensure requirements and or bare certified credits, such as CEUs or continuing education units. So it is somewhat impractical to make the focus that specific today. So where are we going with this? Professional development can be broadly or narrowly defined, formal or casual, intrinsically or extrinsically motivated, episodic or systematic. I'm going to plant a stake in the ground today and suggest that we might consider it as an engaging and rewarding path to lifelong learning and continuous improvement. I think at the end of the day, all that is truly necessary is to commit to and practice the habit of what I think of as humble curiosity. That is, we don't know what we don't know, and keeping an open mind can take you down many unexpectedly rewarding paths. Beyond this rather nebulous and subjective ideal, there are a few things relevant to higher education worth mentioning here. First, and I think this is a big one, many, many faculty members come to their teaching practice without any education on being an educator. They are amazing experts in their field, in their research, but may not have had any prior experience or education about the art and science of teaching and learning. Second, the integration of technological solutions across all aspects of higher education are forcing many of us to become proficient, if not expert, in things we might never have imagined when we were students ourselves. These technology drivers extend beyond the relatively recent emergence of online courses, clicker response systems, 3D cameras and printers. Virtually every step of a student's journey from application to graduation is accomplished with some form of information and communications technology today. Lastly, I just want to mention that there are many brilliant organizations and institutions out there exploring and grappling with these issues. For example, the EDUCAUSE Learning Initiative, or ELI, identified faculty development as number one in their list of the 2017 key issues in teaching and learning. The New Media Consortiums, or NMC, 2017 Higher Education Horizon Report explored several aspects of the issue, such as integrating formal and informal learning, and rethinking the role of educators. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Jeanette Senecal from the Academic Innovation Team at ASU's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are my awesome instructional design teammates, 
Celia Katraitiwa. Aaron Kraft. Stephen Crawford. All right, gang. I've set the stage with many of the issues related to professional development, including workload, ways to define it, and aspects somewhat unique to higher education. Here's where you get to share your brilliant on ideas on how to actually do it. Well, you know, I think the uh, classic method of having groups of people meet in a room for a certain amount of time is, is valid in its own right, but I think it's naturally going to be incongruent with the schedule of a busy professional. Instructors, those in particular who are practicing in the field and also maybe trying to raise a family at the same time, uh, usually aren't afforded a steady schedule. So considering that, um, I'm kind of into mobile learning. I think this is a great way to have accessible professional development on the go, especially since you have these very powerful wireless handheld devices that just keep getting better and better. Uh, it's easy to interact with students or content, peers, instructors across contexts and locations, and so you don't have to be necessarily in a particular room at a particular time. Great point. So coming from um, the Online Learning Consortium's uh, Innovate Conference last week, I spent a majority of my time focusing on faculty development because I feel like it's an area that we as an academic innovation team can grow, but I also feel like as a whole, higher ed can probably grow, as pointed out with um, the ELI and the MC that you mentioned in the intro. One of the things I learned in going to several different um, sessions on faculty development is there is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to faculty development. And I find that in every single one of them, it came to how can we reach everyone? And the answer that I felt was the best was a little bit of each. And whether that's an in-person workshop while having it also shown online through maybe like a Zoom or Google Hangouts, I feel like it needs to be something that is available to everyone, no matter how they choose to attend. So on-demand is an important feature? Yes, and that was that I believe that was talked about in every session that I went to, um, was finding a way to reach every learner that but, can't physically be there. But, you know, for me, I think probably the, the best informal method is also the least scalable of them all. And that is one-on-one -on -one mentoring. You know, when you can match a faculty member up with one or more individuals who are experts in certain areas who've been there and done that and can help mentor them through the process, whether that's one person who is helping them throughout the entire semester or academic year or longer, whether that's a group of people, that really is, in my mind, the most effective from an informal standpoint. Uh, but we always like to go back to more of the formal side going, well, how do we teach our students? Well, let's do workshop sessions. Instead of classes, we'll do workshops. Um, we'll do lectures because we want to convey a lot of information quickly. So we tend to get caught in the economy of scale trap and move away from that one-on-one -on -one mentoring because often we have way more many people who want the information as opposed to those who can deliver it and mentor it, et cetera. So we tend to go toward these other models. I agree. And thinking about the one-on-one -on -one, um, mentoring type of thing, you, I feel like that informal professional development kind of loses that you don't know what you don't know. And if the other methods aren't provided, 
how do those faculty get that type of information? You know, they might not realize that they want to go to a workshop, but if they see it available to them, then that might get them to to realize, oh, I have no idea what that's about. Maybe I should attend this. So perhaps a mix of some self-directed professional development, anytime resources that are available, paired with more formalized professional development offerings through a unit such as ours. Yes, I really enjoy that we do provide faculty with the time, especially in the beginning of the semesters, where we do allow them some walk-in hours, because I feel like that's the time that they, even new faculty who might not have met us yet, or old faculty, not old faculty, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, faculty who have been here for a while, they know those hours and they, they use them. Um, but those newer faculty, it gives them a chance to actually come in and see who we are, what we do. But it also gives them that time to start to gain some trust from us, because so much of the time the faculty don't really know um, that they can really trust the instructional designer to to give them some insight on how to teach and how to grow in pedagogy. Great point. So I feel like those one-on-one times or those walk-in times where they can physically and um, talk with us really starts to grow that relationship and rapport. Yeah. In person is always nice, I think, because you can gauge, you can assess whether learning has actually occurred or not. And that's one thing that's tricky in a digital format if I'm attending a webinar through my desktop or on my phone, the presenter doesn't really know if I'm hearing them or if I actually learned anything from it. Or you're just checking your email and not paying attention. <laughs> that never happens. <laughs> oh, wait, I got an email. Yeah. <laughs> Ding. Yeah. Who would do that? Well, you know, I think that's also, you know, but that goes back to the problem of time. The problem we face is that faculty, experienced faculty, know we're there often, and but yet aren't able to leverage our resources because of their schedule. Newer faculty might get informed that we're here and available, but again, may not have the time because they're going through all the orientation materials, all the other things that need to be done, and attending those first meetings. So time becomes a huge issue. And I think you were onto something there, Aaron. Um, talking about the digital side, where if you had a digital salad bar that was somehow able to provide some information and was easily discoverable and could be used 24-7, so that way, I mean, we know that just like students, faculty are the same way. Some prefer to do things in the morning, whereas some prefer to do things in the evenings. It's just, it, it, and we're not always available at those times because of our work schedule. I tend to think of those on-demand self-directed learning resources as finding those unexploited pockets of time that one might have, like during a commute, where you're not otherwise necessarily engaged. Can you fit in a 15-minute podcast? Can you fit in a 10-minute mini video? And really identifying those quiet times that might be used to get at those ends. Yeah, you know, and I'm glad you mentioned about the commute part because a lot of times I think a lot of folks in general, both faculty for their students and and us for developing professional development, automatically go to well, let's create a video, and and if the if the video is just a bunch of people sitting around on camera talking and there's no visuals, nothing exciting to look at, my question is then why have the video in the first place? If you do audio only because the, 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 there are no visuals, then audio only is perfect. And now it's more usable in other places. I believe that's where I'm a firm believer in um, practice what you preach. 
And so I believe that that's where us as instructional designers can utilize our skills in knowing or studying the right andragogical methods of adult learning and really utilizing those skills to push out the professional development. I think sometimes when we're thinking about professional development as a face-to-face workshop, sometimes we forget that we should be also practicing those um, methodologies. So I think if we kept that in mind, a lot of these different workshops or even deciding what session could be a podcast, like what would be most effective as a podcast, what topic would be most effective as a face-to-face workshop, I think that's where we could build some stronger professional development as a whole. It's a great idea. Love that. All right. So maybe shifting to kind of a different ideology slightly. At certain points over the last 15 years or so, the concepts of personal learning networks, PLNs, and personal learning environments, or PLEs, have emerged as trends du jour. Do you have any experience with or opinions about these models? Can I just ask for clarification here? See, what I think I understand this as is like a community of practice that exists, say, on some sort of social media site, like on Facebook or something. Is that Could be. That's a fair way to think of it. It could also be curated through maybe a combination of social media or your own um, approach to library network strategies. There's no, I think, hard and fast definition. That's the first starting Mm -hmm, point. mm -hmm. And the idea of having that word personal in there, it really is personalized. And make it even be your lunch group. Yeah. I mean, if, you know, the way I think about it is if a group of faculty get together for lunch once a week and if they talk about their classes and what's going on, there's there's learning happening right there. There's professional development occurring right there. That's a great example. And also, I think one of the ways that a lot of discipline-specific community of practices sort of emerge, and they're sometimes granular, um, but they operate in sort of that personal learning network model. I can say over the last 15 years, uh, my experience with PLNs have always referred back to Twitter. So Twitter is must be, because I can't honestly say that I've done a lot with um, Twitters, uh, Twitters, (laughs) with the Twittering. (laughs) I haven't done a lot with Twitter, but I have seen my my personal learning network grow. When I've made in-person connections at conferences, it's always come up, find me on Twitter. And so I'm able to keep up with those um, those connections and really be able to see what it is they're doing by looking at what they're putting out there. But I've also seen you know little chat groups that happen where you can chime in or you can sit back and just be a viewer of of some of the learning that others are doing. So I feel like you know, for my own personal learning network to go through Twitter, I think that's a strong, um, a strong tool to use. You know, I'm glad you mentioned Twitter because I'm a huge fan of that as well. And being at the same conference as you were, I am going through and looking at, you know, who's tweeted what during the conference. And then I always like to look at and go, how do they, what do they normally tweet? Because, you know, sometimes during a conference, we're very conference focused, but, you know, outside the conference, it could be way off topic. And I'm very mindful of the filters. I, I want to make sure I'm getting good information, but I don't want to have to go through a lot of a lot of other stuff to get there. The other thing that I do after a conference is I, with some of those business cards I've collected and other people, I try to connect to them on LinkedIn. And that way, try to establish a connection that way as much. I don't, I am, I personally do not use LinkedIn as well as I probably could and keeping those connections and communications going. 
but on Twitter because I try to be active and, you know, especially staying focused on new cutting edge educational technologies as things are developing. And I try to provide my own commentary on what I think things are going. Um, I also want to hear from other people. And so I, I do want to grow and build and cultivate that network of, of people. And I think that's, I think social media is a great way to do that. I know other people are doing it in Facebook as well as other social media platforms. And, and, and Slack is a new one that people are trying to gather around more. I think those are all really good examples of finding something that works for you, even customizing and adapting your approach to using something to make it work for you. Those are great. Yeah, what strikes me about these examples is that they seem to be networks or communities of practice that uh, truly emerge in an organic fashion. And people aren't being told what to do and where to go, but rather uh, they're attracted, people are attracted to like a group of like-minded professionals. And I think that sort of uh, breeds an intrinsic motivation to contribute resources and share knowledge. And, and unlike the past, you can really connect to the top thought leaders in the industry. Um, I mean, and that's something that before you had to go to the correct professional conference, hopefully make a contact, maybe get an email address, probably not, especially if they're that popular, they're not going to waste their time on you, I hate to say. But now on Twitter, it's a whole different attitude and people are much more willing to engage with other people because they're not feeling, they don't feel like they're giving away a, a piece of themselves in doing so. Yeah, I think some of that public push and pull of information makes it really powerful for building your own personal learning network. Great. Fantastic. So how do you get started with something new? How do you help someone to try something new? And they may already be categorically resistant to the general platform or modality, such as educating with peers on Twitter. You know, it's hard because we, the media does not help. We, we all have an image of what it looks like. And, and listening to a recent episode where I was kind of railing against popular culture, I'll do it here again. You know, we have an image of what Twitter looks like, and it's either a cesspool, depending on what story you've read recently, or it's the place where activists go to overthrow governments, depending on, again, which stories you've read recently. And then somewhere in the middle, there's a bunch of people who ignore all of that because they're not following those individuals. They're not doing the the bad things, for lack of a better term. They're just communicating, and they're throwing questions out to their people going, and I say there are people, whoever's following them, going, hey, this is a question I have. I have done this in the past where I've thrown a question. I'm going, I'm looking for a tool to do X. And people have replied, and I've gotten some great responses from people I've met over the years. Whereas they've done the same thing from time to time. And I'll chime in and go, hey, this is the thing I've used. Here is my experience. And so being able to leverage that, I think, is a really important piece there. You know, for me, it seems that if you can just get one faculty on board, then others will likely follow. But uh, the conversation overall sort of reminds me of what I encounter every time I tell somebody that I am involved with online course design and they'll say, oh, well, isn't online worse than face-to-face? -face? And I used to react with a sort of righteous indignation, like, how dare you? But <laughs> I have come to temper my response. And I will admit, yeah, if you're trying to get a face-to-face -face experience online, you're going to be disappointed. You need to shift your perspective. And again, I'll go back to the chiropractor uh, metaphor that I like. I, I often see IDs as uh, sort of chiropractors that put everything into alignment. I find that an adjustment in perspective, you'll actually be able to appreciate what, what online, for example, has to offer. Right? If you're a non-traditional student, it can be a lifesaver. And you know, I was a non-traditional student. I was able to work two jobs 
and still go to school full time. So, you know, that was very nice. But anyway, so when you're trying to move somebody to a new platform, I, and especially somebody who, I mean, faculty are often faculty because they spend a long time in the field. They have a lifetime of experience. So there can be a lot of reasons that maybe there's just, they're not comfortable with technology or, or um, they've never used it before. And, and, you know, now they're sort of being faced with it. So I, my role now, I see, I, I would say, is to help adjust their perspective or at least offer a competing perspective. Yeah, I mean, we like what we like. And, you know, a lot of people played with Twitter in the very early days and saw no value of it because all they saw were pictures of the people. People going, hey, here's, here's what I had for lunch. Here's a picture of it. I mean, fortunately, that's not what most people are doing. I mean, I, I'm guessing the Kardashians still do that. I, I don't follow <laughs> them, so I don't know. Um, but I do know that my colleagues are going to very interesting conferences and by listening in on their experiences while they're attending a, a conference that I'm not at, I get to kind of feel like I'm there a little bit. I get to feel like, oh, I'm, I'm learning something because they're sharing their conference experience with the world. And so I feel like I'm there. And sometimes I'll ask questions and they'll ask that in the keynote panel maybe out loud. And I get an answer despite not being there. One of the things that I found to be a little bit effective in some cases is to kind of generate use cases, you know, pick an institution that they're interested or invested in, uh, you know, the CDC, and show them an example of the reach, show them an example of how many people get important and critical timely information through a platform, for example, and to illustrate what the potential is. Yeah. You know, and I'll even talk about another platform to get off Twitter is podcasting. Um, I've really gotten into podcasting over the years, and it's something that I've I've been listening to podcasts off and on for well, this is this is 2017, so a very long time. We're just gonna leave it at that. Um, at least 10 years. A lot of podcasts have come and gone, and sometimes you know they they fade away and you don't realize it. And that's the hard part nowadays is finding the ones that are still active, giving you new information. And I've learned a lot for, of different things through listening to podcasts because what's nice about podcasts is that you're getting you're getting experts you know in most cases or you're at least getting somebody who's put some time and effort into it and and if you don't find value in it it's a lot easier to just go nope unsubscribe and move on whereas on Twitter you probably just ignore them and, and tune them out so yeah I, you know when you see that something is published by say Arizona State University you start to assume that there's going to be a level of credibility associated with it true confession before we started this project, I thought podcasting was dead. <laughs> it's not dead. It just smells funny. We just brought it back. <laughs> Go us. Those are all wonderful examples. Thank you all. Uh, last question. Do you have any final tips, tools, resources, or strategies to share? This is your chance. Google. <laughs> yeah, Google that, that's a good friend. point. You know, Google, um, I think... If there is something you're interested in, use your in-person Google, your librarian, or your local instructional designer and ask them questions. If you don't have access to them or you can't email them or you don't have one, then yeah, hit the Google machine. See what you can find. Um, you may have to do a lot of digging and you may not find what you're looking for quite easily. I, I have found some really good podcasts that I've been listening to, and, and this is something I, I, I find some value in. Um, our friends at the University of Central Florida uh, have one called TopCast. Teaching Online Podcast. Yeah, the Teaching Online Podcast. 
Sorry, Kelvin. And I know he listens. So, and I listen to his and he knows that. So, and that's something that's kind of nice because we're approaching this topic from very different angles, from very different perspectives. And so hearing what they're doing and what they're dealing with is a lot of fun and, and, and hearing how they're approaching those problems. Another one is the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast that I really like. And, and Bonnie does a really great job with that. And she's been doing that for years. And there's an archive that I'll never get through and get caught up on. But she has covered so many great teaching topics. And Oregon State, just over a year ago, started up their Research in Action podcast. And that is a great one for anybody who wants to learn about more about research. She has covered some very interesting topics, um, including mixed methods. Uh, she's, in, she's covered um, dealing with press as a researcher and I, it just all over the place. And so, as, you know, as I think about those, those podcasts, they're, not, they're easy for me to consume because I can play them while I'm working on other things at work or on the commute to and from work. Yeah. Well, like Celia mentioned earlier, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. So it might be useful to go to your librarian or your instructional designer to help you f- collect resources. I mean, there, there's just tons of resources on the internet. It just takes a little bit of digging and searching. So yeah, actually, you have people to help you do that. Uh, when I think about you mentioning Google, I think about the on-demand. And I know I'm a big fan. And I wouldn't say like for professional development, go to YouTube, but I'm a big YouTube fan. When I need to learn how to do something, for example, change the fuse in my washer, I go to YouTube. So when I think about professional development, it goes back to that on-demand type of thing. Um, I feel like more and more, we're getting so many things that are on-demand that um, that's definitely something to think about when developing professional development. And with all the YouTube channels like TEDx and TED with all of their presentations, as well as all the government agencies and and keynote speakers at conferences, I mean, there are so many great things there to learn from a professional development standpoint. And there's people who's showing how to use Blackboard and doing screencasts. So yeah, it's a great resource. Oh, okay. Serious uh, suggestion here. Well, Google was serious, (laughs) but uh, lynda.com. I have learned so much about anything that's a software on lynda.com. And I think they, they go into other areas too, but uh, definitely one worth checking out if you can. Well, those are definitely um, examples of OERs and that can be used for professional development as well. So open educational resources. Um, when you're thinking of outside sources that you can use to help supplement your own professional development within your academic area, those are things that you can definitely go to. Great idea. So I'm going to throw one more on the pile with a slight degree of, of hesitation. Uh, I don't want to contribute to the inbox bloat, but there are some really good subscription-based email services that you can get just a spoonful of professional development delivered to you daily. And I would definitely recommend checking out, uh, for example, Faculty Focus, Teaching Professor, Tomorrow's Professor, Inside Higher Ed, and Prof Hacker by The Chronicle. I think they're timely. They present a lot of different information and the threshold's pretty low. If you don't want to read it, you delete it. I'm so glad you said that because I subscribe to all of those and Uh I'm able to, I was actually afraid to say it because of the whole email bloat thing, but (laughs) I'm a fan of it and I know that I can flag it and come back to it later or I could say I'm just not interested at all and delete it. And the same thing applies to podcasts. I mean, you subscribe to them when a new episode drops. You can look at it and, and read the show notes and go, nope, this is not one I think I'm, I'm going to care about. I'll save my 30 minutes or an hour, depending on what format they're using, and say I'll listen to something else. 
And I think that's a very important thing to do is just have all those feeds coming in and don't be afraid to say no and hit delete and not worry about it. Those are all really great ideas. Thank you, guys. As the spring semester winds down and the fiery summer months are upon us, we challenge you, our audience, to explore some of the resources and ideas we discussed today. We'd also love to hear about your favorite tips and tricks, so feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or by email. Thank you for joining us today to creatively envision new approaches to professional development with Celia Kuchwatiwa, Stephen Crawford, Aaron Kraft, and myself, Jeanette Senecal. As always, deepest gratitude to our producer, Ricardo Leon, for without him, we are like trees falling in the forest with no one around to hear us. That's deep. (laughs) (laughs) You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation.